My panel again, Bernard Harbour, Colette Brown and Tanya Ward. Um, Tanya, I'll come to you first of all. It's difficult not to start with the issues uh, surrounding the uh, the mortuary in Waterford. Um, what strikes you about uh, Leo Varadkar's apology and moreover, uh, what do you think prompted it? Was it uh, feedback on the doorsteps or was it the prospect that maybe the Sunday newspapers uh, in lieu of an apology would end up running some more salacious detail about what's actually going on there? Well, look, I suppose if stories run more than a week, um, I think that's when you often get a, a political response to it. But I, I, I thought, I suppose, in terms of the apology, um, I think he came out and was clear that, look, I was misinformed. I got it wrong on this occasion um, and it's time to move on. And I suppose from my perspective, I want to look behind what, what the, behind the apology and look mm. at the reasons for the story in the first place. Yeah. There's a good piece by Tony O'Brien, uh, the former head of the HSC and the Sunday Business Post, um, um, and what really comes across from it, um, and in a way it makes me really angry uh, because, it, again, it goes back to the recession, is that at the time of the financial crash, the government had planned to invest about a billion per year in maintaining and upgrading our health infrastructure. Mm. And that fell to half, uh, less than half a, a, a billion as a result of the financial crash. As a crash. result of that. And that went down for 10 years. And I suppose we as a people are still paying the price for that financial crash. And it has meant that, you know, in places like Waterford, when our parents die, uh, when your aunt, your uncle, uh, relative, that they're not given the dignity that they need in, mm. in, in, a, in a place like Waterford, in, in the hospital. Um, and I think it really connects to, you know, this is the, this week we had the highest uh, homeless figures, actually, in the same week. Yeah. And again, that's another problem linked to the recession. The fact that that we didn't invest in social housing and public housing for vulnerable families and working families. We are paying the price for that as a country. And I hope that we can get back now to what the core issue here is. And actually, we have to try and find the money to build an infrastructure and a hospital system that guarantees people dignity um, and, and protects mm. the kind of safety and welfare of the staff working in the hospital system as well. I think that's what comes from this story. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating actually. We, we talked on this programme last week about how the HSE had uh, tried to resist the release of that letter under uh, Freedom of Information and usually you'd reach the conclusion that because the HSE were reluctant to let it out there that this wasn't the case of the HSE uh, looking for an excuse to try and wrangle more resources out of the government but that they thought they had the resources and that they were just trying to cover up their failings and that, that appears not to be the case from what Tony O'Brien is writing this morning he says that there's 2.25 billion euro uh, available to to meet the long list of priority replacements necessary to maintain uh, safety and quality in the healthcare system such as x-ray machines MRIs and so on Um, but that ultimately the bill for that is going to be 3.64 and there's only 2.25 available he also points out that we're going to need 9 billion euro in health capital spending to address issues of infection control and ageing equipment uh, over the next 10 years which is uh, money that they don't appear to have set aside Um, Colette what do you think has as prompted the uh, the apology from Leo Varadkar, do you think well, it is on the doorsteps, or where do you think it's come from? Well, I, no, I I think it presumably is on the doorsteps, but I think other than like kind of speaking about generalities and you know deficits in the healthcare system generally, I think this is a very serious story. And when I heard Leo Varadkar's initial comments about this, I was actually shocked listening to him because he seemed to be very clearly casting aspersions on the words of the four consultant pathologists mm. who, let's all remember work in that mortuary day in, day yeah. out. Even if he was only repeating the line of the hospital group though because they were the ones who had said a day no, earlier that there was and I no think, such I, I think credit goes to the Waterford News and Star and their journalist Darren Skelton. So Leo Varadkar was in Waterford at the start of um, at, 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 at the start of the week mm. and and he, he made these comments and Darren Skelton who's the person who submitted the FOI request. So okay, so I, I'm, I'm just going to give a timeline because I think the timeline yeah, is, sure. is, 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 is important here. So the pathologists wrote to the 
hospital group in October 2018 laying out their concerns and saying that they were formally putting them on notice that, you know, there were all of these very serious problems with the mortuary. There was no room. uh, Bodies had to be left in corridors and everybody knows the details of the letter. The hospital group ignored that letter. They did Mm. nothing. There was no response. Darren Skelton puts in his FOI request in March of this year. Suddenly, (laughs) there's all action. The hospital group responds to the letter that had been sent six months previously to Mm. the consultants and at the same time refuses to release the letter under FOI. Darren Skelton gets the letter anyway um, and the the pathologist then subsequently write another letter in March 2016. Then Leo Varadkar comes into all, all, all of this and says that there's no evidence to support what the pathologist had said, but no evidence other than the word of the four pathologists who had been working in the um, mortuary. He also said that there was no uh, no other corroborative statements at the time, but Darren Skelton put it to him last week that actually there was an incident report submitted by one of the pathologists in January 2018, which outlined a particular instance with one body that had to be moved from the mortuary in Waterford to another uh, mortuary in another part of yeah. the country because of problems in the uh, in in Waterford. Yeah, and I don't, I don't mean to, to, to waylay your your timeline, but that is a direct contradiction of what the hospital group itself had said. Because when it issued its statement at the start of the week, it said that it can confirm it wasn't in receipt of any incident report form from any staff member in relation to the mortuary at UHW. And I and, and I think the wording is is pro- probably critical there because it said it wasn't in receipt of any incident report form so maybe when they so, so maybe it was mm. an email that was sent in January 18 yeah. and it wasn't actually in, you know the, there's probably an, uh, a document within the HSE yeah. somewhere that's incident report form and perhaps so it didn't be notified without being notified yeah basically. so it, per, perhaps it didn't adhere to that or perhaps the contents of the complaint weren't contained in an incident report form but they mm. suddenly received notification of it um, Darren Skelton put that to Leo Varadkar when he was making his statement saying that there was no evidence and he didn't know who to believe and he just seemed to discounted. And then, you know, there was a huge backlash to his comments during the week. There was Fine Gael candidates in Waterford who were getting terrible abuse at people's, mm. door, at, at people's doorsteps because of the comments that he made. And then he suddenly came out and said he wished to unreservedly, unreservedly apologise because um, corroborative statements had since come to light since he made his initial statement. But actually, when he made his initial statement, one of those corroborative yes, statements was, was, already, put to, was put to him yeah. and he completely discounted it. So, uh, Bernard, um, there's a bit of me that that thinks that Leo Varadkar up till that point was merely just parroting what the hospital group had told him and of course as the Taoiseach he, he can't sort of undermine um, the account of things that he's given by the officials who are more responsible for management on the ground but then there's also a bit of me that thinks that this is a guy who has been Minister for Health and he knows that there is a culture within the HSE of trying to deflect and deny rather than going public and admitting that there are major shortcomings precisely because the health sector knows how difficult it is to recover your kind of reputation when you're you're kind of dragged through the mud a little bit like this. Um, which side of, of that debate do you come down on? Well, at the risk of doing what uh, Tony O'Brien predicted and talking about the apology rather than the problem, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think I mean it's it's I think it's worth going back to basics first of all and saying that clearly there's a, appalling conditions in the mortuary mm. that's come out this week quite clearly. Uh, and if you're bereaved and it's you know a member of your family who's deceased in in, in that mortuary, that's a that's a terrible uh, situation to find yourself in, and something mm. should be done. Seems to me that the hospital group did recognise that there was a problem and is doing something about it, although it seems to be quite slow. Mm. Uh, it's gone to tender now, according to reports yesterday in the papers, uh, for a new mortuary. 
Um, but as far I mean, Leo Varadkar, it's puzzling in a way. It seems to me that uh, he was clearly briefed because he said what he said. He wouldn't have just made that up. But it seems to be a very, a very poor briefing that he had. And good advice to a politician in a situation like that is don't get into the detail of an issue that you don't understand. Uh, if there's two sides to the story, uh, the other side will come out. So mm. uh, in, in one in, in one sense, it's part of the part of his uh, USP. You know, one of the things that's politically attractive about Varadkar is his reputation for straight talking. Uh, but it is going to get you into trouble if you straight talk on a bad brief uh, and you're not in command of your facts uh, in, a, in a situation which is so, uh, you know, so emotive and so, means so much to so many people. Mm-hmm. But I think also what's extraordinary about this is that, it, you know, according to Leo Varadkar earlier on in the week in the hospital group, it was like not, nothing to see here. But in 2004, there was a HSC building report which said that the mortuary uh, wasn't fit for purpose. Yeah. And the mortuary it, was only six years old at was, that time or something? It was eight, eight, yeah. eight years old, I think, at that time. In 2014, I think um, it got the green light for an, an, a new mortuary for, you know, to uh, go ahead. Nothing has happened in the intervening yeah. period between mm, 2014 yeah. and, and 2019. The pathologist sent that letter last year. Of course, we all know that the hospital group didn't bother responding until the journalist put in an FOI request. Within 24 hours of their letter being made public, the HSC had announced a mobile refrigeration unit was being um, provided for the hospital. So if you think about it, between 2004, when it was deemed not fit for purpose, and 2019, the only thing that the HSC have managed to do in relation to the mortuary is provide a fridge. Mm. I mean, it's taken them it's taken them 15 or nearly ne- 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 nearly 20 yeah. years that, in, that's to, the, to, that, to do yeah, that. That's the underlying issue, isn't it? That actually throughout the country, there are situations where the health system is creaking, where the infrastructure is falling apart and we're not making enough money available to, to upgrade it. Because it's very clear in the Waterford situation, there was a huge amount of knowledge and awareness that the mortuary conditions are really poor. And one of the big challenges is we have an ageing population. It's going to happen. Mm. You're going to need bigger mortuary as more people pass and die you have to make sure you guarantee dignity you can even see conflicts when you look at other major reports between should the money go into cancer services or should it go into into the mortuary um, and I think often what is happening now in Ireland is when the media gets hold of the story that's when the resources are, 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 are exactly are, are or, or, or just consider the children's hospital I mean, nobody knows how much that's going to cost. We had a report the other day, which said, or last month, which said it could be two billion. Yeah, maybe two billion, but we're not actually sure. Maybe it's going to be more. Nobody knows, but we really need a children's hospital and everybody seems to be fine with that. Mm. And meanwhile, you have pathologists in in Waterford who are trying to get a a new mortuary so that, you know, dead people can be treated with, you know, the bare minimum of dignity. Uh, And Tony O'Brien makes the same point as well in his own piece, too, that that, uh, all of that means that that, uh, slightly thinner and slices of the pie available for every other capital project. Um, I'm glad, Bernard, that you mentioned uh, Leo Varadkar and how his political ascent was sort of marked with this trait of of um, shooting from the hip and, and not being willing to, to couch his words. I want to play a little bit of audio and we think that the um, this is audio from Leo Varadkar, I think commenting in 2013. Um, his attitude then certainly seems to conflict with the attitude that he had taken until yesterday, at least, uh, with the four pathologists who had uh, written this letter. Let's take a listen. They've come in for some criticism uh, from some quarters in recent uh, days and recent months for releasing guard information about private individuals. While I do understand this criticism, I don't share it or agree with it. The guard whistleblowers only released the information that they did after they tried and failed to have their concerns addressed through official channels and proper means. They released the information in an effort to expose bad practice 
and to protect the public. And they did so through Raptus members, which is expressly provided for in the Guard Act of 2005. And so speaking on my own behalf, and of the thousands of families who've had to endure the pain and loss that flows from the death of a loved one on the road, I want to thank Sergeant McCabe and Mr. Wilson for their service. They may not have got everything right. They may not have got everything right, but they did shine a light into a dark place and force those who would rather turn a blind eye to face up to the truth. There have been many words to use to describe their actions in recent months, but if I was to use one word, the word I would use is distinguished. Uh, Leo Varadkar, obviously speaking in slightly different circumstances in 2013, speaking about the uh, penalty points controversy at the time, but largely speaking out in favour of whistleblowers who had been somewhat pilloried by the establishment for pointing out what they saw as massive shortcomings in the system. You could argue that exactly the same uh, is true now, Tanya. Why, why do you think the teacher's attitude has changed so much? I, look, I don't think it's a, a change in attitude as such. I, I think it's around, as Bernard said, it's, it's the way he was briefed. Because the one thing you notice as an advocate, um, I go to a lot of press conferences, a lot of announcements are made. Um, you know, I've lobbied uh, the Taoiseach on different occasions, on different issues. He's usually very well briefed. Um, and he gives you a run for your money because he usually knows his issues very well. Mm. I think what comes across here is that he didn't know the issues well enough to be able to comment on it. Um, because, you know, 95% of the time, when you hear him respond to the questions, he usually gets it right and usually has a bit of a deeper understanding as a politician. And that's rare enough, to be honest, because it's hard to be the person who can connect with the general public and understand the policy issues and work out what actually needs to be done uh, for people as well on, on the ground. So, I mean, that, that's my reading of the situation. Bernard, your thoughts? Yeah, and I think, I mean... <laughs> We've got fairly strong whistleblower legislation in place, and I think that that's a good thing. And very often uh, these issues, I think the Garda issue was a slightly different thing. Um, uh, it was, you know, it was about practices rather than resources, if you like. Uh, but uh, the, the, the difficulty with this is, and Tony O'Brien makes this point, I think, in his piece, which, which we've all mentioned in the Sunday Business Post, um, there are competing demands for this cash. It's not as if there are billions of euros sitting around waiting to be spent on everything that needs to be mm. done. Uh, and I wonder, and I genuinely wonder, I don't know, but... Is the, what is the context of the fact that this hasn't happened? What is the context of the fact that the um, that the uh, movement has been so slow on this issue in Waterford? Uh, is it because there are competing demands for resources, so it's been put on the long finger, or is it or or, or is it some 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 failure of management? I don't know what the answer to that question. Mm. But O'Brien's making the point, which I think actually goes well beyond health, which is that there are a lot of calls on the public purse, a lot of calls on capital spending in particular, uh, and uh, if the answer is we have to prioritise this uh, project over that project, I think that's you know reasonable issue for debate. Uh, if the answer is we just haven't got round to it and the resources are there, that's not yeah. that's well, not a reasonable. Even response. if it is, I think an internal competition for resources. I'm not sure how you could possibly make the argument that at least treating the dead with a certain amount of humanity and not allowing them to potentially decompose in corridors yeah. really no, ought to be high up that. Well, and, and of the, course, I, I think uh, actually, of I course, think but you could point. also say that uh, you know if there's a need for uh, development of cancer services for the living, that that, that, that it's. I'm, yeah. I, I'm not saying. No, the mortuary's yeah, not right. an issue. It's a debate. I'm saying these really are genuine into, competing, uh, yeah. uh, competing priorities. It, it really brings into question, you know, things around tax cuts. You know, 
I think most people, what they want are good quality public services. They don't want their mother and father to end up dead in a mortuary and not given the dignity that they mm. deserve. So throwing five euros on, on, on the OAP doesn't really change people's lives, but it would make a difference if that money was put into building and supporting the hospital infrastructure. But I think if I could just briefly sure. ma- ma- make the point that, you know, Leo Varadkar was commended and rightly commended for what he said in relation to Morris McCabe and it was seen to be a very, at the time he made those comments, it was seemed to be a very significant intervention in support of Morris McCabe and, you know, it was if it, it, it was very commendable of the teacher to do that at the time. But, I, you know, we, we don't we didn't just have one whistleblower here. We had four whistleblowers yeah. because the letter was signed by the four consultants, pathologists. And for Leo Varadkar to have seen the contents of that letter, I mean, it takes a lot for somebody to put their to, 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 to put details like that in a letter yeah. and sign their names to it, particularly when they're sending that letter to the to their employer to put something like that on the record, because it could have repercussions for them professionally within the, the hospital, you know, because obviously their employer isn't going to be too thrilled to, to, to yeah, to, yeah. To, to, to see that and, and even uh, some examples of that coming out in the last day or two as well exactly and I, 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 I just think it's extraordinary that he saw that letter and then made the comments that he did without interrogating the issue further and he should have um, I think just one point I'm madly overdue for a break but I just want to draw attention to one thing uh, the statement that was released by the hospital group which was somewhat overshadowed then because Leo Varadkar became the, the face of that commentary about 24 hours later um, they Leo Varadkar obviously said that there hadn't been any evidence to, to back up what had been suggested but the hospital group statement did say that in relation to contact from bereaved families and funeral directors since the initial media reports University Hospital Waterford can confirm that it had received a query from one family and the hospital were currently engaging with the family concerned so Quite how it could say that there wasn't any evidence when, in fact, somebody had gone to them and said, we believe that we might have been one of these circumstances and can we talk to you about it? Quite how they can then say there was no evidence without prejudging that, I think, uh, remains to be seen. Um, There is a little bit of content, um, a little bit drip fed all over the place about exactly what's going to happen with the national broadband plan. Uh, Richard Bruton purported to go to Cabinet this week and to seek a €3 billion sign off. Some suggestion that that might be with uh, the local elections in mind and maybe it might be easier for Fine Gael candidates to go door to door in rural areas areas and promise them that, that broadband is coming. Um, Bernard, I want to come to you. Bernard, in, in a previous life, you were the special advisor to Alex White, who was the Minister for Communications, whose brief is now held by Richard Bruton, who's bringing this to Cabinet. Um, first and foremost, I don't suppose you ever anticipated when you were in that office that the cost of this would ever reach three billion. What was the, the expected price that you were dealing with when you were there between 2014 and 16? Yeah, it was far, far lower than uh, three billion. We were still talking in the region of four or five hundred thousand. Uh, for the program, um, I, I mean, I would say that the uh, I, I was in the department. Five hundred million, I presume. Uh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Yeah. I, beg your pardon. <laughs> I was in the department for a couple of years, and yeah. I have to say that the um, the team of people working on the national broadband plan were incredibly um, dedicated and skilled, and it was a very complex process. And I nothing but admiration for not just their knowledge and their skills mm-hmm. around the issue, but their determination to. Uh, to bring broadband into rural communities. As as a matter of housekeeping, actually, on the the plan that you were working on at the time, was that just when the plan was about bringing it to every village, but not necessarily providing it right to the door? Is that what the the price of the 500 million that you were looking at? What was the the brief at the time? No, we'd made the commitment that uh, every premises in Ireland would would receive broadband, uh, would receive access Mm. to high-speed broadband. That was the the ambition. And it it is a tremendously ambitious programme. And I think that uh, uh, in the papers uh, this week, uh, Stephen Kinsler's writing about this today in the, mm. in, in, in the paper and referencing Robert Watts, uh, the, 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 uh, yeah, the senior official 
the finance. top civil servant in the Department of Public Expenditure uh, yeah. who is advising against this sort of spending because he doesn't believe it's good value yeah, for money. Yeah. I think that there's a theme in this linked to the, to the last item we discussed, the uh, Waterford Hospital, which is this issue around capital spending. And I think, you know, it's well over three years since I was working in that department. Sure. But, you know, I think there needs to be a debate about whether that is a good use of money, um, particularly the last, you know, the last few thousand homes or premises that would be covered by the broadband plan. Um, Philip Ryan writing in the Sunday Independent today uh, mm. says that the KPMG audit found that the, the final 27,000 houses would account for almost 10% of that $3 billion, which is an awful lot of money when there are other calls on the public purse. Now, I'm not particularly arguing that it shouldn't happen, but I think that it's been under-debated, uh, the, the actual ambition of the National Broadband Plan and whether it's appropriate. Mm. The other thing I'd say, by the way, is that the uh, procurement process is incredibly complex, and it's complex because of the uh, European Union state aid rules. Uh, we uh, we pretty much gave away the state control of uh, telecommunications many years ago, which I think in retrospect was a mistake mm. because if there were a state-owned uh, telecoms company, this yeah. would have been a lot if less complex uh, and, and a lot cheaper. Um, and I think that but it, does you know, that mean that then we, we are, because having already sold it off, that we are effectively powerless to ever create a brand new one that has to remain in private well, hands we, forever? We could create one, but it would incredibly cost you more than $3 billion, I'd say, uh, to create a, a supplier. But the, the, the thing is that once it's in the private hands, uh, once all of the market is in private hands, you have to abide by these inc- incredibly complex rules, uh, which really have, I think, put the... The, the integrity of the market is the supreme aim of these plans rather than the delivery of a service. And I think it's one of the areas where, to get off the point slightly, where the European Union needs to look again at its, uh, you know, what it's doing because it's one of those things that people cannot understand about what's happening in Europe. And this is feeded into some of the, some of the kind of Brexit-type okay. uh, disillusionment with Europe. It's- this should be about what's the cheapest way of providing an excellent service, not what's the cheapest way of the market functioning uh, in order to provide that service. Mm. Um, Tanya Ward, you're the, the chief executive of the Children's Rights Alliance, which is another one of those agencies which from time to time goes looking for your sh- fair share of government resources or to, to have the pie delivered in a, or distributed in a, a slightly different way. Um, very few would argue that it's very that it's possible to exclude some people from a plan like this. But when it's going to come in at a cost of three billion euro, do you think that there is a case to be made that perhaps the money would be better utilised on other things, and that you could perhaps cut off the last five uh, percent of homes or the last ten percent of homes, or, or and try and save a significant amount of money that way? Would that be a better idea for you? Look, it obviously needs to be looked at in terms of the the, the the ambition of the programme might need to be looked at given the, the three billion. And, you know, it is striking that we're going to invest potentially three billion and we actually won't own the broadband network after the fact. Mm. Um, but, you know, the thing that jumps out to me from the news today is if the procurement process is opened up for another, t- it'll take another two years. Um, at the moment, we know that over 500,000 homes are waiting for broadband. We have a falling rural population. We have people moving to the cities because they can't get work in rural Ireland. Incomes are lower. Child poverty is higher in rural Ireland than it is in the, in the urban centres. Yeah. And for children themselves and young people themselves, they're actually really suffering, paying the price not having broadband. You know, there's loads of stories of children having to go to the local supermarket, hang out in the car park to be able to do their homework and doing it in the back of a car because they can't do it at home. Um, a lot of children are saying they can't get access to information, they can't communicate with their friends and that's actually the norm if you're a young person. You live your life in the online world. 
you can't do that in parts of so a rural I, Ireland. I don't mean to be to be reductive or to yeah. try and sort of uh, distill it down to very base terms, but are you effectively saying that uh, because people cannot live in rural Ireland or you know live to the same degree in rural Ireland? that they are then ultimately encouraged to live in urban areas where the risk of childhood issues are, are far higher. I think so. I mean, that it's trade-off I, I, between connectivity I mean, I, and... I, I, yeah, I, I, I definitely think it's having an impact on economic development. <coughs> it's having an impact on people's education. It's having, a, in fact, on communities being able to communicate with each other. And it is leading to people having to move to the city to work, putting more pressure on, on the housing market in, in, in the cities as well. I think it's something that we really need to look at. And yes, we might need to look at that final 27,000 on the list, see where people are living. We know in that when we d- develop local communities in rural Ireland, there's an issue when people are living in very, very rural locations. It's mm. much more difficult, for example, in terms of community safety to keep them safe um, if there are a lot of robberies happening in the area. So there's a bigger discussion that we have to ha- have to have. But there's no doubt broadband has to go ahead. We have yep. to get the rollout going ahead. If we want to save rural Ireland, it's absolutely fundamental. And just to come back on that, I mean, I'm not mm. suggesting that it's not important that this happens. No, of we, course not. We were at a conference, uh, a FORSA conference in Carrick, just, just outside Carrick Macross the week before last, um, within spitting distance of the two main roads leading from the south to the north of the country, and the broadband was appalling. And that's, that, I mean, that's not remote rural, rural Ireland. Yeah, well, my, uh, my family home is on the main road between Dublin and Trim, and and they finally got fixed line broadband two months ago. Uh, so it's, it's not exactly a, a thing that's uh, that's relegated out to the sticks. But but on that note, Coletta, and with that a little disclosure um, out there, um, Philip Ryan, as we mentioned earlier on, has this table in the page three of the Sunday Independent where he outlines um, how much could be saved uh, by excluding uh, five or 20 percent of the, the whole uh, programme. At some point, and again, this is with no disrespect to those people, but at some point, do you have to make a policy decision that if people are going to choose to live in uh, more rural areas, which are slightly more inaccessible where the infrastructure isn't already there, that they have to come with a reasonable expectation of not having all the luxuries of more urban living? Well, of course. I mean, if you build a house at the top of a mountain, you know, away from everything, then, I mean, the expectation that you're going to be able to get very, very high speed broadband, you know, it has to be kind of low down on your list of priorities if that's where you choose to live. But I think the ambition from the government has always been to do its best efforts to connect every household in the country with high speed broadband if it can. And I just find it really funny this attempt to rewrite history now that it's been revealed that the cost of this project is going to go from circa four or five hundred million to three billion. So we had Pascal Donoghue coming out and saying, oh, but back in 2012, when this project was first announced, we were just going to bring it to villages. We were never Mm. going to bring it to every household. And then you reading back the statements from the then communications minister Pat Rabbit when he's explicitly saying we will have broadband mm. in every house in the country when, yeah. when this project is over. So I mean I don't think the government should be allowed to, to get away with that to try to re- represent it as if well it's costing a lot more money now but it's a substantially different project than what was first envisioned. Actually no it's not a substantially different project it's the same project you just got the costings mm. completely wrong. Uh, we have in previous weeks uh, asked Pat Rabbit if you'd like to come on and talk about that actually about how, <laughs> how it's been presented as as a, a case of distributing it to every village or whether it was to every home and he's declined to do so but the invite remains if he does want to come on. Colette, um, there's a little bit, uh, pro- perhaps not as much as will be written had other stories not been so dominant from the courts this week but uh, there is a little bit written uh, in some of today's papers about uh, the fallout from the High Court uh, ruling on Friday regarding Ruth Morrissey and cervical check um, and the standards that the court has now determined that has to be followed for any future reading of smear tests which seems from a scientific perspective whatever about the morality of it 
from a scientific perspective seems to be a little bit of a difficulty. Yes, well, I, I wasn't I wasn't in court and I haven't read the judgment, but these this particular uh, you know phraseology has been picked up by all the newspapers and um, it was Mr. Justice Kevin Cross who said that one of the labs you know sh- or the labs should have had absolute confidence in the review of the scans that they mm. had done and absolute confidence now has been kind of uh, <laughs> highlighted. Yeah, it's in, become the beacon. In, it's yeah. become, become the beacon and uh, allegedly some some new standard and and and. and I I don't think it is. I mean, the law about negligence is, is very clear and Mr. Justice Kevin Cross using the words absolute confidence doesn't mean, I mean, I, I, I don't think knowing what we know about how the, you know, uh, you know, the cervical check programme works and how screening works yes. anyway, I, I don't think any lab can have absolute confidence. I mean, obviously, to the best of their ability and in the professional opinion of whoever has reviewed the scans, they believe that the results are accurate. Mm. But I think kind of saying, you know, you have to be absolutely confident and that nobody is ever going to be able to dislodge that confidence no matter what. Yeah. Trying to kind of reinterpret what, what, what the judges said along those lines, I don't think would, wouldn't be helpful. Like, well, I mean, it's not credible. But isn't that 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 could be some of the danger uh, now, Tanya, couldn't it? Because the it's, it's all fine saying that you want to have absolute confidence in the decision you have made but it is a fundamental limitation of the screening process that about a third of abnormalities will be cleared through that process through no fault of the person reading it. It's just a shortcoming and that's the way it that's is. That's right. I mean, screening pro- screening programmes by their nature, what they do is they uncover it. Look, there, there might be a problem here with this person. They're not diagnostic tests in themselves. Um, and I think this is one of the big difficulties. You know, we're really going to have to look at what it means from a legal point of view and what it means for screening tests moreover because there's lots of different screening tests in operation. There's the bowel screening tests, there's breast screening. Uh, if this test is applied, I don't know how they're going to be able to do it could it end up costing the screening programmes m- more to be able to do it will you have to have one or two or three people well, you see, this case ran for, ran, ran for 37 days mm. and I mean we, none, none of us were there so there was a lot of evidence in this case yeah. and there were two labs involved in this case as well so Ruth Marcy she had a, she had a sc- or screen in 20, uh, 2009 and that was Quest Diagnostics and then again in 2012 and that was, was Med, med Lab, med lab yeah. Pathology so you have two separate um, l- labs involved 37 days of evidence. Yeah. It's possibly quite a lengthy judgment. I don't know. I haven't I haven't read it. Mm. Um, and for everybody to suddenly be kind of saying, oh, um, an absolute confident test has now been applied. I don't think an absolute confidence test has, has now been applied. I just think maybe that was an unfortunate phraseology. But perhaps it might be more of an incentive for the government to try and get going on that, uh, the non-judicial uh, tribunal yeah. that it's wanted the, to set up, which could get around yeah, all of that time. The, the only challenge is it isn't, it isn't a judgment, so it becomes law. Um, and uh, without reading the judgment I mean you'll have to see what, what it actually does actually yeah. mean Well I think one of the labs have already signalled that they're going to appeal yeah. so And I think but in the, in, in the case it did find that the two tests were there was neg- medical negligence in those cases yes. so it wasn't a case of a false positive the normal things that happen in the screening programmes is that the taste the tests weren't, weren't read ap- appropriately um, and that's why Ruth Morrissey did so well in the, yeah, in the uh, case It still makes you wonder though why so, so far in advance it's now over well over 12 months and aside from the failure to legislate yet for the, uh, the mandatory open disclosure which was one of the major fallouts from that as well that the progress in setting up that tribunal to uh, save people from having to go to court still appears to be uh, quite slow uh, but we'll move on uh, Bernard obviously with your, your day job hat on with the, the Forza Trade Union the question of public pay is something that's very uh, close to your professional heart um, when the government says that it can't afford it and you have all these uh, reports from Pascal Donoghue urging caution and prudence on the part of other ministers um, what crosses your mind then when you open page 4 of today's Sunday Business Post and you see that the Department of Finance has hiked its corporation tax forecast by another half a billion euro 
Well, I think, I mean, the minister's been out a number of times, including this week, on the on the public sector uh, pay issue. And what he's been saying is that we're in an agreement, we're about in the middle of a three-year agreement, and that he'll, he's, he wants to stick to that. Uh, and then we'll be negotiating another one afterwards. Uh, it's become complicated by recent events, uh, not least the re- resolution of the nurses' uh, dispute. The mm. nurses accepted that uh, Labour Court recommendation this week. Uh, and that's, uh, that's, that's led to a situation where a significant group of public servants covered by the agreement has been treated in a different way from others. Uh, and I think that that has inevitably led to uh, questions about how other groups can pursue their grievances. I'll give you one example. The nurses' case uh, was based on the issue of recruitment and retention. Uh, Forcer, Enforcer, we represent men, amongst many others, physiotherapists, speech and language therapists, uh, and, and an independent report has found that they have a bigger problem of uh, retention than, than in nursing. So the question then becomes, well, if one group can have access to a uh, process, why can't other groups? And I think that that has led to um, a, a knock in the credibility of the agreement. And that's why we, my colleague Kevin Callanan uh, last week called for a midterm review of the agreement to try to, uh, you know, bolster the confidence in the agreement and make sure it lasts the course, the, yeah. another 18 months that it has to run and continue to bring the stability that it is bringing to the public finances. Uh, there's also the, the strategic question as to whether this has better served those who signed up to the deal and then a- seem to have opposed it from within like the INMO did or some of the teachers unions who stayed outside because they were concerned about pay parity and now although they've got a guarantee that that could be looked at at yeah. some other point well, that they're every, a party to the deal anyway. Yeah pretty well everybody signed up to the deal I mean all the, the, the teachers are in the agreement and are you know are getting the pay increases that come from the agreement mm-hmm. there's a separate issue around the new entrance question that they've raised again this week. Uh, what about by the way as a, a side issue to this and this is something which is long uh, forgotten I think when people talk about public pay and, and the issues taken up by the unions. Um, it's one thing about the unwinding of FEMPI and to have the, the reversal of um, of pay cuts that were imposed at the time. One other thing that was introduced in the course of the financial crisis was the pension levy, which Pascal Donoghue is reported as saying on page two of the Sunday Independent, will not be abolished, that there will be this kind of permanent lingering part of the financial measures of the downturn, which are now going to remain. Um, is that something that, that public unions are effectively just going to have to accept that it comes par for the course of having a slightly more comfortable pension regime than others or is that something that the unions will still be taking up? I'd say there'll be different views among different unions and among different individuals. I mean, the situation now is that the pension levy is, uh, or it's a new name now, but the pension levy as we all know it is it costs about 10% of your salary. Uh, there's a 6.5% contribution that's always been there on top of that. So most public servants who earn above about 32 grand a year are paying 16 percent of their salary on pension which is considerable amount of uh, mm. contribution uh, and and by and large they get better pensions than people in the private sector where uh, in most cases neither the employer nor the employee pays into a into a scheme uh, the piece in the um in the uh, is it the times this morning the uh, times or the Indo? i can't remember sorry uh, kind of implies that this is top of the list of priorities for unions yeah uh, uh, i i don't think that's quite the case i think there are other issues uh that uh, unions will be more concerned with uh, when when we come to negotiate another agreement it's it's really about incomes it's about working time it's about a range of issues i think that there's an acceptance uh, on the 
part of most public servants that the uh, the uh, the value of the pension means that the pay, you know what we pay into yeah. the pension is going to be more than what others others pay in, and that's the situation that we're in now. Yeah, but it's just it's, I think it's fascinating that it appears to have dropped off the uh, the public conscience at least that there is this other part that uh, public servants would, would rather not see coming on their pay slips uh, every week or every fortnight. Um, Tanya Ward, I want to come to you. There's a piece in the Sunday Business Post uh, Post Plus piece today. Uh, Susan Mitchell has got some hold of some pretty um, stark figures around some of the fluctuations in in vaccinations. Um, as the CEO of the Children's Rights Alliance, where do you stand on the whole question? of perhaps excluding people from uh, preschool or school itself or excluding them from child benefit if they're not vaccinated first. Yeah, I mean, that's not the place to start, really. You know, you don't, I suppose, children have an absolute right to access education. And I suppose you don't start trying to uh, deal with this crisis by going with a sledgehammer to address it. If you look at the reason, I mean, this, the figures are staggering and shocking in the Sunday Business Post in terms of what's happening uh, for vaccinations. You know, in 2010, uh, you've got 95% of new babies getting the BCG, you know, it's something we all get down to 80% last year. I mean, that's a shocking drop. And the reasons behind it, it seemed to be there's a global problem around vaccinations. Uh, you know, we have a population of people that didn't grow up with all the uh, the diseases mm. and health conditions and harm caused by the diseases that the vaccinations are, are addressing. But there's also this growing distrust of the elite and people in power telling people what to do. And the anti-vaxxers have done a lot of damage and they've been able to do it and sweep through social media with uh, misinformation and it's had a huge impact on people. How you address it is building trust and building confidence. And how you do that is you have to have big public promotion programmes to counteract the bad messaging coming from the anti-vaxxers. And you have to have people that the public actually trust to give them advice here. And it has to be said, if you look at these rates, they're happening along the same time that we have less public health nurses operating. Um, there was a freeze on recruitment and your public health nurse mm. is really important because she's working in the local community. It's mostly it's mostly women. She's working in the local community. She knows families. She's trusted by families. So you don't mean the shortage of nurses uh, because of the the, the fact that they can't administer it but the fact the shortage of nurses means that there is no familiar face in the community that's that people right. trust yeah that's right if you're in a, if you look at some of the lowest rates um some of it is in dublin you need a higher density of public health nurses out there working with these families and being able to counteract the misinformation and tell them mm. the benef- benefits of the vaccination um i know the minister for health is talking and he, he's consulted with the ag if we can make vaccinations mandatory i'd be interested to see what the advice is there yeah. we had a children's referendum maybe that will, will will allow that but there are countries around the world where they don't have mandatory vaccination and they have the same rates they have the highest rates of vaccination and it's down to good public health mm. education and promotion One of the other I thought was really striking about those figures that Susan Mitchell has obtained today is that there's only an 87% uh, penetration rate if you want to call it that of what we would all know is the MMR jab it's got a different name these days but that some parts of Dublin where one in eight children has not yet received that jab and to think that herd mentality requires about 95 percent and we're looking at 87 it's particularly worrisome so it only takes one child to come in with mumps or measles and it it, it actually causes a huge infection within Mm. the area yeah and I think the like there's some stark statistics as well in Susan Mitchell's piece she says that in Ireland the number of reported cases of measles trebled in 2018 it's not just measles she says the number of cases of mumps reported so far this year in Ireland has exceeded 1,000 twice as many as were recorded in the whole of 2018 and the MMR vaccine 
vaccine, remember, provides protection against both of those diseases. But because the vaccination rates are quite low in certain areas of the country, then and not every child can get these MM, the, the MMR. Remember, yeah. if your if your immune system is in any way compromised, then you can't. And so it's hugely important that everybody who doesn't have a compromised immune system does get these vaccinations so that a herd, um, you know, a herd protection mm. develops in in community. And as somebody from Cork, I'd just like to note that uh, it North Cork and Southley in Cork both have 96.5% um, vaccination rate. Look at you looking at the, any opportunity which, to talk which, up which the is, second city. Which is city. the, high, which yeah. is the yeah. highest uh, in the country. Has, so. the, the highest Congratulations to everyone in Cork. People, um, just on a more serious note, by the way, if people want to talk more about the question of, um, of mandatory uh, vaccinations and the like, Andrea Gilligan covered this really comprehensively uh, on her programme and podcast Between the Lines, which you can catch at newstalk.com. She had contributions from uh, Kira Kelly of this package, uh, David Kenny on the legal issues, and Kevin Kelleher from the HSE talking about some of the policy issues that uh, administrators have to grapple with. You can download that at newstalk.com uh, and it's well worth a listen. Uh, in the couple of minutes that we have remaining time, just while you're here, you also wanted to, to raise some of the uh, concerns in, in some of, not today's papers, but yesterday's papers around coverage of uh, child poverty and the like. Yeah, that's right. I mean, some of the papers are referring to uh, today on, on the, the housing numbers, uh, the fact that they're the highest that they've ever been uh, and that came out this week. Um, yeah, um, 3,800 children. Yeah, and so basically a population nearly the size of Athenry are now in homeless uh, accommodation um, and this was one of the big things that Sheila Wayman d- uh, raised yesterday in, in, in the Irish Times is she did talk to people on the front line people who are working with these children um, healthcare worker in Temple Street seeing you know really high numbers of children being injured in these very small uh, contained spaces dealing with the stress and difficulties that family are going through you know if a child vomits in a hotel room or a small confined space that's everything destroyed mm. the whole family are affected by it um, small children having nowhere to, to crawl, that's having a huge effect. And I think where we have to go now on this is we have to start trying to limit the amount of time people are spending in homeless accommodation. About 12 percent, uh, that's more than one in 10 people are spending up to two years in homeless accommodation. And they are not your people who are more difficult to accommodate. They're mm. ordinary, traditional families and children are carrying the brunt of that. They're becoming institutionalisation and it's having a big effect on their welfare, their development and their education. Potentially. And no doubt there are not issues that you can just shrug off then when you finally do find yourself in permanent accommodation afterwards. Uh, interesting thoughts. Thank you for that. I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. So my thanks to, to all of you for coming in uh, and again, giving us a little bit of your, your long weekend. Do appreciate all of your time. Uh, Bernard Harbour, Head of Communications at the Forza Trade Union. Colette Brown, Barrister and Columnist with the Irish Independent and Tanya Ward, uh, the Chief CEO of the Children's Rights Alliance.